Lord, we are talking about the new covenant and the, the ministry of the Spirit in contrast with the old covenant. Uh, Father, I don't know if we drive around uh, on this island and are those concerns for us? Um, I would guess that those are, are probably not. Uh, but we have, Lord, here many, many gems of truth that are worth considering. So in this time, help us to engage and to rediscover what do we have in the blessing of knowing Jesus. And unpack this for us, Lord. Reveal it to us, and we will give you praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, how do you keep how do you keep going? How do you press on? What do you say to yourself when you're encountering an obstacle in your life? When a project you've been wor- working on is is slower than you thought or has fallen apart perhaps completely? Um, how do you press on? How do you keep going? Is it just sheer willpower? Uh, what do you say to yourself when you encounter difficulties. At that point in the Christian heart, there's some really important things going on. And what comes to the surface is really our belief system, our functional belief system, the, the true guiding beliefs of our, of our heart. As we look at what Paul's doing here, what's coming to the surface is, oh, that's what he thinks about. Oh, that's what he, he dwells on. If we were traveling with Paul, you would hear him speak about trials, difficulties, people who have turned from him, hardships, church plants that feel like they've failed, and you would hear him, what is going on in his heart that gives him hope? That's what's going on in this passage. And what Paul is doing is he is working out the implications of the gospel. For us, we need to work out the implications of the gospel daily. Do you know that he is expressing freedom from human opinion throughout 2 Corinthians? He's very open with his emotional life. He's he's open with his struggles. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says that he and his traveling companions at one point despaired of life. They were so depressed, they wanted life to end. That's the Apostle Paul. At some times in his travels, he would become separated from someone he loved, and he would fall into anxiousness and despair. I was reflecting a little bit about this, is that if you do lose track of a friend in Athens, um, there's no cell phones. Um, there's no way to track someone down. And in fact, if you're a long way from home, you might find them if they're from your hometown, and you might never see them again. And numerous times in Paul's writings, he he despairs of having lost track of someone. He tells the Corinthians this. Paul has emotional experiences 
And yet, he draws upon the implications of the gospel for those emotional experiences. For instance, upon the troubling experience of despair and hardship, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2.14, God is always leading us in triumphal procession. Do you think that way? (laughs) When you encounter a hardship in your life, do do you say, Oh, God's always leading me in triumphal procession. A plane's been canceled, a flight's been canceled, something difficult's happened. And do you confidently say in your heart, oh, this is all, it's all just part of a triumphal procession that I'm part of. It's interesting when we read our Bibles. Let's read our Bibles. Sometimes the Bible just strikes us as an odd thing, very different from our world. I don't know. I want an answer to my problems. Paul provides an answer. But it's a different answer than what we would have expected. What about the experience where the gospel doesn't seem to work? How about that? Like a minister's ego. How about the, how about the experience of someone saying, well, you know that Paul guy? His gospel really isn't that spectacular. Look at the people who don't respond. In other words, we've got a gospel that is really, really working. Paul's, you know what Paul's is? I don't know. It just doesn't really seem to impact that many lives. Can you imagine a minister of the gospel hearing that? Wow, that would be, that would be pretty hard to hear. But Paul says, well, we don't preach ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. But we preach Jesus as Lord. And as we're going to look today, actually when someone doesn't believe, it's really not the minister's problem or fault. It certainly would be the minister's concern. But when a person doesn't believe and the gospel doesn't have some sort of flashy, glorious fruitfulness, it's actually a deep spiritual issue of the heart being veiled from the truth. So Paul openly says, really, we preach Jesus as Lord and we're just servants of other, of other people. Another strange thing, for us, at least our day, it wouldn't be strange in the, in the time of Paul. The Old Testament was, the Old Testament and all the, the temple and all of that activity, that was very, still very impressive, even for a non-Jewish area like Corinth. Those were, those times the times of Moses and the people of Israel, those are really the glorious times. What's this new covenant stuff? Jesus, what did he do? For us, we're very familiar with this. For them, it was, well, the Jewish state and the Jewish ceremonies and the Jewish religious practices, those are kind of glorious and they were a unique people. What was in that that would be attractive for us even as non-Jews? Well, Paul lived under that, and he was a Pharisee. And Paul, having discovered who Jesus is, turns away from all of that because he realizes that all of the Old Covenant is pointing to Jesus. Who would ever want to go back to black and white when you have living color? That's what Paul essentially is arguing. He says true appreciation of what Jesus had done was actually waning in a lot of the churches our epistles in our New Testament. 
Ephesians or Colossians, in some way, someone, the church, has undervalued the new covenant in Jesus. Paul sees that there's a spiritual dynamic underway, and he is more than more than happy to say, "The age of the Spirit has arrived. The Spirit is at work, and I'm a servant as I preach." And minister to the churches. What I want to emphasize again, we're looking in, we're listening in to the deep motivational structure of an individual. What really motivates them? What really gets them up and going on their day? What happens is we discover that Paul is radically God-centered. God has, God has made us ministers. God is leading us in triumph. God is transforming us. God has removed the veil of our hearts. God has given us mercy. God has given us a message, which is Jesus as Lord. God has given us his spirit, which is the guarantee. What has God done in Jesus is more than enough for Paul. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 1, these remarkable words. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So if we were to encounter Paul, you would encounter a person who had emotions like you and I, had difficulties like you and I, wasn't a superhero, and that's some spiritual superhero, but he worked from the mercy of God toward him, knowing the mercy of God toward him, and he didn't lose heart. He faced very, very difficult things. His mercy, excuse me, his view of Jesus was a full view of the glory that is in Jesus. Something new has arrived. The ministry of the Spirit has arrived, and the Spirit's arrival is everything. The Spirit has now opened the heart, and now the heart is seeing the glory that's in Christ. Then he says in verse 2, we have denounced or renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Some translations talk about craftiness and deceitful scheming. Verse 2 continues on. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Well, why would someone tamper with God's word? Why would a minister tamper with God's word? Well, it happens because you want a response from people. It's really hard, by the way, to just depend upon God alone while you're preaching. And you're up here and you think, well, my personality is pretty overbearing, or my humor is pretty amazing, or my stories are quite remarkable. And what happens is, is that you begin to do something different. It looks like you're preaching, but as you watch and listen, there's a lot of references to the preacher and his self and who he is, his resume, his accomplishments, right? And, by the way, there's, (laughs) not to discourage you, um, there's there's not a few narcissists in the pulpit who come to churches that 
well, feel weak, feel unhealthy. They need a dynamic personality. And you're interviewing for a pastor. And guess what? That pastor says, I'm the fix-it man. Of course. You should make, you should make reference calls. Everywhere I've gone, I've fixed everything. In other words, in the pulpit, you can have the self on display in a pretty predominant way. And uh, I try to not be pejorative uh, toward other groups, and uh, but it is remarkable to read how certain churches sell themselves on their websites, the promises that are given there. Uh, I read recently of one that said that... Um, it said this, that God wants you to have a terrific life. And I just thought, I've never, I've just never, I'd never have thought of the Christian life in terms of terrificness, right? Now, maybe you could say, oh, of course, it's, that's a one way of expressing how wonderful it is. But then as you read on, you realize that what you're being promised is follow this prescribed way of living, apply these principles, and your life is going to take on this dynamic. You are going to reach heights of achievement and success. Oh, now wait a minute. That's different. What? That's that's really that's how you define terrific. That makes sense. We are being called, as Paul is leading us, to be discerning. When he says to the Corinthians, "We do not preach ourselves." The Corinthians had willingly accepted ministers who preached themselves. So, we want to be careful with this. We want to be discerning. Can you discern if someone is tampering with God's word? That means that you realize that the gospel is about blood, atonement, redemption, sin, God's wrath, these subjects. Now we take sort of American self-help subjects and we insert them into the gospel, supposedly, and we come out with something very different. Can you discern that? I hope you can. I hope you're growing to be able to do that. Discernment is actually a big problem in the church today. Discerning. Am I getting scripture here? Am I hearing the gospel clearly here? Can you discern if someone is tampering with God's word? That means that they're making God's word uh, accomplish an end or a purpose that it was not designed for. Now, what's happening in the Corinthians is that at, at Corinth is that there's a fascination with Jesus as a Jewish person and an Old Testament sort of revival going on, and these teachers are promoting this. Even the Old Testament doesn't point to itself. The Old Testament points to Christ. So the Old Testament is proclaiming a day of glory that is coming in the New Covenant, under King Jesus. And this arrival of Jesus outshines all that has been done before. 
And so this is why Paul uses the imagery of shining and glory. There's a lot of imagery of shining in this passage in chapter 4. And this is true of us, is that we are attracted to what is shining. We're attracted to what is glorious. We're attracted to what is, what is grabbing us. And in the gospel, though, in, in the work of Jesus for us, we have plenty of glory to gaze upon. Look at verse 6. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a very dense sentence there, a lot of thoughts. God is, has, God is shining into our hearts. More is going on in the conversion of a Christian who can now see the glory of Jesus, more is going on in that person than was ever taking place at Mount Sinai. Even though Mount Sinai was, was rumbling with the holiness of God's presence, Mount Sinai had thunder, thunder and lightning, a marvelous display of glory in God's holiness, yet it remained, the glory did not enter the heart of the individual's. In fact, as we learn about Israel, the more we learn about Israel is they don't want anything to do with this God. They ask Moses to sort of keep this God at a distance. But for us believers, this glory is in you. This glory is in your heart. Do you perceive it? Do you sense it? Do you feel it? Do you know it? Do you, does it brighten your view of life? This glory is is shining in you. Any turning away from this gospel glory in Jesus diminishes the Christian's joy. And that's why Paul says, we have, verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. He's talking as a pastor. You do this. You turn people back to some prescribed law-keeping way of living, you are diminishing their flourishing as a person. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Why would a minister insert themselves in the middle of ministry? Because they want to touch the glory. They want the glory to be about them. It's very, very hard to turn away from the attention of people and to live for the attention of people. Not a few ministers get involved with ministry because they have approval issues. They want to be approved by people. Paul says in verse 2, he says, here's how we handle uh, here's how we handle people. Verse 2. He says, But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's a little bit of a complicated thing to understand. Basically what Paul does is this. He says, look, here's how we live. We just tell the, we just tell the truth to everybody. 
We don't have any sleight of hand. We don't have anything up our sleeves. We just tell it like it is. Some people are against us, and we talk to them. We talk to their conscience. Some people are really for us, and we talk to them. Wherever we go, we appeal to everyone's conscience. In other words, we're the real deal. In our home, in private, in public, we are the real deal. We live before the face of God. Now, all of us have encountered a salesperson who seems to be saying one thing, but you're sure something else is going on. Don't you pick up that vibe sometimes? And you keep asking questions, and they sort of say are saying the truth, but you're not quite sure what's going on. Well, Paul's saying we're sincere, and we tell the truth. In the sight of God is the key phrase at the end there, verse 2. Now, the scrutiny of, what, of, pe- of people is one thing, like being able to sort of handle a crowd, speak, speak to their questions and concerns. That's one thing. But how about living before the sight of God? That's a whole other thing. This means that Paul is saying that where we really live is we live before, the, before God's gaze that can't be hidden from. That's where we live. Jesus said in John, uh, John 3.20, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. Interesting, isn't it? Comes to the light so that he may be clearly see, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So how does Paul answer this objection that, you know, Paul, your gospel doesn't have a lot of response to it. Like, there's a lot of people when you preach, you're talking about this glorious King Jesus. You know what? There's people who don't believe. Maybe these Corinthian preachers were able to just sway crowds and get everyone to follow them. And they compared that to Paul, and it just seemed like, what's, what's up with Paul's gospel? Look at the response of people. Is there something wrong with Paul's gospel? Look at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, see, that may have been a criticism of Paul. Your gospel just doesn't go over very well. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now that is a remarkable statement. The veil is over the heart. And the veil is this unwillingness of people to believe. Somewhere there's an interaction between the God of this world and the unbeliever's heart. And Paul says, well, here's how it works. In the preaching of the gospel, you just preach the gospel in all its goodness and love and grace. And you, and you hope that God will take this and shine upon the heart. But there's a spiritual dynamic going on. Success in the gospel is not dependent upon the preacher. It's upon God changing hearts. 
And if someone doesn't believe, if there's an apparent lack of failure of that proclamation, it's in their hearts. Something remarkably hard and difficult to acknowledge is going on. People remain in their unbelief. And unless God changes them, they will remain there. Jesus as king is preached, but for some, the heart remains unmoved. In fact, Paul concedes it in that little phrase, even if our gospel is veiled. Meaning, yep, I see it. Yep, it looks like it's not very effective. Paul Paul concedes how it looks, but he goes deeper into the spiritual dynamics of it. And Paul's answer is that the unveiled gospel, openly proclaimed, has been veiled to certain people. The saving effects of the gospel are evidence that people are living. The, The saving effects of the gospel are only visible if God's grace accompanies the message. Calvin said that the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel, for the sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive its light. So there's another force at work in the realm of this veiled unbelief. Jesus called him the God of this world, John 12 and John 16. He's called the prince of this world. In 1 John 5, 19, we hear that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Paul says in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The unbeliever is in a terrible situation. Unbelievers cannot gaze upon the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They cannot see. And sin leads to blindness, and blindness leads to destruction. We put a large emphasis upon the sovereignty of God, and we would say that Satan, yes, he's the king or uh, lord of this age, world, but we also believe that his power is limited, and God can break in through his own power at any time. But Satan's power is not working against the will of people. He's finding people cooperative. To this, though, Paul does not yield in the temptations of adjusting the gospel. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, in verse 4 and 5, but Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servant, for Jesus' sake. I'll leave you with the final image of verse 6. God is shining. The heart sees. The heart has been given light. It is knowledge. The light is knowledge. The knowledge of glory. It is knowledge of the glory of God. And there is a face that is central to all of this. The glory of God is on the face of Jesus Christ. It can be said, rightly so, that What is it like to know God or to see God? And our answer would be to see Jesus. Verse 6 is the key that helps one understand an underhanded way of ministry. In other words, anyone who's trying to block 
someone else from seeing the glory of Jesus is acting in an un- underhanded way. This is, what ca- Paul, this is what was working inside Paul's heart where he did not lose heart. When God works, people see the glory that's in Jesus. The mercy of God had shown into Paul's heart and this mercy allowed him to see the glory and this mercy made him a servant for the purposes of presenting the gospel. And I hope that you, as you think about this new year, move in, in, in revived hope, God's goodness toward you, that he has shown in your heart to reveal to you the glory that's in Jesus. This is his intention. Every time we gather, every time you open scripture, you are a glory seeker. Oh, Jesus, show me yet again your glory for my, my heart that needs to see it. Isn't this sweet? This is, the, this is the beginnings of real renewal in the heart. So let me pray for us. Lord, what a sweet passage of Scripture, of, uh, of really an, an outward-inspired reflection of Paul about how ministry works, about the temptations, and yet to be just a servant of your purposes and to be more than happy to play that role. Lord, we think of our co-workers and neighbors and family. Lord, we, uh, we want, we want the, the veil of their hearts to be removed. Help them see a glorious, glorious Savior. Thank you for your remarkable, remarkable comfort that we too do not have to lose heart. And so, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. What a sweet...